Welcome to Brute Facts. We have a early shift today. Uh, we have Dr. Joshua Sijawati, and he is a metaphysics guy, which I absolutely love metaphysics. He's got a PhD from University of York, and he is going to talk to us a little bit about an argument that he published himself. And hopefully, We'll get some dieting tips, too, as he's absolutely jacked. So uh, with that, <laughs> my wife accused me of having a man crush on him. So if that happens, I guess so. But uh, I did want to mention something. I recently started a content, a Christian content creator uh, fund. And I have the links in the video below. So if you feel moved or encouraged to donate to it um all finances are going to be public and visible uh, also if you are interested in maybe starting up a content creator or or some content a youtube channel or something like that send me an email that's in the description i'll get a, a little welcome packet out to you and i believe that covers everything yes all right so now we're going to get on with the show and the star of the show so everybody hang tight and uh let's have fun And welcome, Dr. Sijuwadi. How are you doing? Hi, Eddie. Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I'm really excited. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we're, you're in the UK, right? Yes, I am, yes. Um, I would love to be okay. in the US, <laughs> but I am in the UK. <laughs> A little bit gray, the skies and everything. But um, yeah, I'm based here. It's a bit overrated here, so. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I'm, yeah, I'm a Christian. I am very interested in philosophy, uh, specifically philosophy of religion. So I, well, my, my story is a bit of a strange one in that, yeah, I, I already said to you, I like the US. Um, but one reason I really like the US is because I, I love American football. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I used to play American football here and I took it quite seriously. Um, and I was hoping to go to college, uh, NFL, all those sort of things. Um, and then I had, this was around 19, and I had a religious experience, which completely changed my life. Um, and from that experience, I then sort of had a U-turn sort of experience where I was going one direction, morally and intellectually. And then I just had a complete U-turn and went a different direction towards Christianity and devoting myself fully uh, to the faith. And so since then, I just fell in love with theology and then from that, discovered philosophy of religion. And since then, I've just been yeah, really enjoying sort of researching and writing on that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like a nice little venture there. Yeah. Uh, what, what got you? I, I got to ask, uh, what got you into metaphysics? What was it that kind of drew you yeah. into that? I, I mean, um, so when I was studying theology, I was interested um, in systematic theology and then specifically apologetics. And then I sort of discovered philosophy of religion. And from sort of philosophy of religion and further further sort of research, I discovered this area of philosophy, one of the general areas of philosophy, which is metaphysics. And it just really sort of um, just got me really interested in thinking about these deep fundamental questions of reality. Because metaphysics is sort of this study where you're 
sort of taking the most general approach to reality. And you're saying, well, what is the most fundamental structure? What is the best account of the fundamental structure of reality? And I really do like sort of these ultimate and big questions. And I felt sort of metaphysics um, sort of provides you with an opportunity to really think deeply about these things about reality. And I felt like also it can play a big sort of role in providing resources for arguing for theism as as we're going to speak about later in this this um, conversation. And and I skipped right over one of the questions I wanted to ask. What position did you play? Sorry, what sorry. Position so did you play? What position oh, running did you back, play? Running, run, Run, yeah, running back. Um, so you, yeah, you like so I, I don't look like I'm, yeah, I don't look like I'm very fast. Right? I'm actually quite fast, um, but I do like sort of trucking, you know, running over people. Even though I'm a Christian, uh, all those sort of things. Oh, there's still some great carnal uh, <laughs> release there. So yes, yeah. So yeah, running back. Um, so that was my main sort of thing, and I yeah, I loved. Uh, so player wise, like Adrian Peterson, um, he was oh, very. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. So I was like modeling myself on him when I was playing. Um, and then you have other individuals. But yeah, so um, uh, it was running back and then a little bit of wide receiver, but mostly running back, yeah. Yeah, I've, I'm kind of a shorter guy. So running back, okay. uh, yeah, quarterback and running back was out for me. I couldn't see past the line. But yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you play uh, linebacker. And, uh, oh, linebacker, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm a... I'm a football freak. I absolutely love it. So is American football big in the UK or? Um, not really. Okay. It's a growing thing. And I think the NFL is sort of, um, they've discovered that there is sort of a, a sort of a, a growing fan base because you'll see a lot of teams come from America and they'll play in London. So you have like Jacksonville coming all the time and they'll be playing. Um, and so I think was it this year that they had two games or yeah, I think it was about two games they had in London. So there is sort of this big base that's sort of growing. And you'll see Wembley Stadium, which is like sort of the, the biggest stadium in the UK. Um, you'll see it completely packed out when you have NFL games coming. So you do have sort, sort of a core base here. Um, but playing wise, the the quality obviously is nothing like in America. Um, but it is, it is rigorous in that people are taking it seriously and they're developing programs to sort of get high, get high school level kids into it. So hopefully, I don't know, a few years from now, we'll pick up a little bit more. And I, I heard, actually, I think they were, I hope it doesn't happen because I don't know how the season will work. But they were thinking of, um, I don't know, if having a, a team based here, but I don't know how that would work at all. <laughs> I feel sorry for the traveling teams and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. that. Uh, yeah, I did hear about that. They had talked about having uh, a, a team over in the UK. They used to have the uh, uh, European NFL over yeah. there too, and that was that was pretty neat. I I watched you know a few when football's uh goes off here. I'm kind of like going through this withdrawal phase, looking for. Yes. You know, <laughs> I'm like watching arena football yeah. and anything. Like that. Yeah, XFL and all those man. Yeah, CFL. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know the feeling. It's like now Super Bowls happen. You're like, oh, what am I going to do? That's... NFL draft, and then yeah, you're just pushing through. Yeah. Um, but also like college football, I really like college football as well, um, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, so it's just waiting again for fall time, autumn time. So hopefully, uh, so my my team. I mean, I I'm a big Kansas City guy. Um, I love oh. love Patrick Mahomes. I oh, absolutely Patrick love Mahomes. Awesome. He's just he's just unbelievable. His creativity and everything. Um, so yeah, when they lost, um, they didn't get through to the Super Bowl. It was a bit heartbreaking, yeah. but um, their game with Buffalo was was unbelievable. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's just yeah, and football is one of those loves I can speak about for ten years. And yeah, oh, I'm with you. That's uh, yeah. we, I, we probably shouldn't even brought that up. But just for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a Bears yeah. fan, so I'm a glutton for punishment. Oh, okay. Um, so I've been. <laughs> yeah. I uh, fell in love with Walter Payton. And, oh yeah, yeah. Oh my um, gosh, unbelievable. Yeah, and Mike Singletary and Richard yeah. Ginn, and actually saw Mike Singletary in person and got his autograph oh, at wow. a. Awesome. Um, motivational speech so that was kind of oh, like okay, a dream okay. come true but uh oh, that is, yeah enough about the bad news bears um <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you developed an argument on the uh on a grounding it's a grounding argument for god right a metaphysical grounding yes and so just briefly what uh for the audience um when we talk about grounding um grounding is 
with is ontology and grounding uh interchange I th- grounding's a little different than ontology right yeah so grounding is 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 basically it's a concept that individuals are sort of researching into in the wider field of metaphysics so you have okay so you have ontology which is one area and then you actually have metaphysics which is a different area so ontology is about existence so trying to understand the things that exist in reality. So you might use the term, this is my ontology. And so you're, all you're basically saying is that these are the things that I affirm to exist. Um, so you might have um, basically a viewpoint when it comes to ontology, which will be called a formal ontology. So you would say these are the, the things that exist, universals or tropes or um, other things, substances. So that will be sort of the area of ontology. Then metaphysics is more of a... I'll say a fine-tuned study of what is the what's the best account of the structure of reality. So, what is the best way of us understanding how reality at the most fundamental level is structured? And so, grounding is then over the past fifteen years or so has been sort of it's taken a center central role in trying to provide an account of the structure of reality, the fundamental structure. So, a lot of philosophers. Um, specifically, you have these three big philosophers. So these are philosophers who are, have nothing to do with theology. So they're just general metaphysicians. So you have a guy called Kit Fine, Jonathan Schaffer, and Gideon Rossen. And so they sort of spearheaded this research program into this concept called grounding. So this was around 2009, 2010. Um, and then since that time, um, you've just had a lot of metaphysicians who have said, actually, grounding seems to be a concept that we want to know a little bit more about because it's it's something that carves so metaphysicians use, use this term carving nature at its joints that's just basically a term that this thing we're talking about really captures this fundamental structure of reality and so grounding is just a concept that plays a role in an account of the fundamental structure of reality um yeah yeah and it um I've seen um, some philosophers actually talk about uh, or kind of meshing it into a theory of causation. Um, It's like, uh, you know, it's when we talk about like theories of causation, are we talking a lot Aristotelian causes or or, uh, some kind of just uh, it, it, it wouldn't be a material cause, would it? Uh, no, so I, I think when well when grounding is being utilized, I don't think they might use the Aristotelian distinctions. Um, a lot of philosophers, when they're sort of looking into it, but grounding for some philosophers. So one of the people that I spoke about, Jonathan Schaffer, who plays a big role in that grounding argument that I, I formulated, um, he would view grounding as a relation that's analogous to causation. So we have causal causal relations, which a lot of philosophers will affirm to be things that exist. Um, but then grounding is seen to be a relation that is within um, a family of relations that shares similarities to causation. So the way that, for example, causation, you have A causing B, that will be a diachronic um, relation. So what I mean by that um, is that A causes B, but then there is a temporal sequence between them, between A and then the effect, so the cause and the effect. But then grounding is a relation that's analogous to causation, in that you have A grounding B, but it's a synchronic relation. What that means is, is that A is, oh, sorry, B is existing in virtue of A at the specific time that we are referring to. So it's, there's no temporal sequence in that. Um, and so outside of this argument, I found grounding to even, let's say in the theological context, to play, to be a very illuminating concept, even for other theological discussions. And so in other works, I've used grounding to bring light to the doctrine of the Trinity, um, and specifically the eternal generation of the Son and the Spirit from the Father, and how to make sense, well, what does it mean for the Father to bring into existence, eternally into, um, bring, it's always difficult to say it correctly, not fall into heresy, Um, so to eternally beget the Son and eternally spirate the Spirit, how he does this, grounding, I believe, can play a really um, helpful role in illuminating that sort of type of relation. Um, but then specifically in our, our context of our discussion, um, I see grounding as also being something which can provide evidence for God's existence. 
Um, and so I've sort of formulated an argument to try and show that. Yeah, when you start talking about diachronic and synchronic, I immediately think of Swinburne. Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> I was, he, he makes those distinctions in his uh, epistemic justifications uh, or yeah. epistemic justification. And not to go on a side tangent, yeah. but um, so would you, it seems as though you may be talking about like an Eastern Orthodox perspective of uh, the yeah. Trinity. Is that? Yeah. So, yeah, that, I always get this. Um, so my, I, I am, a, I'm a Roman Catholic myself, um, but I, yeah, my theological sort of view of the Trinity is very, um, it corresponds very closely to what a lot of Eastern Orthodox have sort of formulated in their understanding of the Trinity. Um, but I, yeah, it, it would, it, I would say it emphasizes the more Eastern understanding of the Trinity, but it can also correspond with the Western form right. it's just that i believe um so there's a lot of scholarship on this um that's taken place over the past 20 years or 25 years about how there isn't really a divide between east and west on the trinity it's just more of an emphasis so what you will have is the east emphasizes let's say the principality of the father and then the west emphasizes the unity in nature or the unity of substance and so it's not really that they were saying there's different understandings of the Trinity here. It's just where the emphasis lies. And so for me, a lot of the time, yeah, I would bring a lot of emphasis more to the Eastern side, but I do believe it corresponds also to the, the Latin or West uh, understanding as well. Yeah, that's um, so that I had issues with uh, the Latin model. Just, I mean, nothing major, just, you know, kind of trying to analyze it and, and, and really kind of comprehend it the best I could. And when I was introduced to the Eastern model and, you know, talked about God is the cause and mm -hmm. from the cause is, you know, the spiration of, yeah. uh, you know, the spirit. And, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it made a lot more sense to me. So yes. I, you know, to me, uh, I kind of hold to the Eastern Orthodox view, uh, but yeah. I would agree with you. I don't think it's really, they're not really that different. You know, yeah. it's, yeah. uh, but so with that, yes. um, so do you have uh, the argument itself? Is it like, do you have like a simple syllogism or you just kind of lay it out mm. in a little layers or, yes. or how would you present that uh, in the yes. simplest form? Yeah. 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 So yeah, simplicity is the important thing here. So, um, well, I think the first thing to understand is that there are different, as your audience will know, there's different ways to argue for things. And so you can have a deductive argument, you can have inductive or abductive arguments. Now, the general one that a lot of um, your audience probably would see are people giving deductive arguments where you have the premises or you have a number of premises and then you have a conclusion that you derive from the premises. And the conclusion should be that God exists from, let's say, there being a universe or so on and so forth. Um, but this argument is not arguing that way. It's an abductive argument. And that's an argument that tries to... Um, draw an inference to the best explanation of certain data. So basically we have some data and then from that data, we try to, through a certain criteria, um, come to the best explanation of that data. Why did this data occur? Well, according to this criteria, it is this over that. And so that's the way that I'm arguing. That's the way I prefer to argue for God's existence. And so my argument sort of goes in that type of way where I take there to be certain data but this data is not data that you'll find in the scientific realm. And so where what I'm really focusing on a lot at the moment is trying to look at evidence that would be found within the field of metaphysics. So what I said before, metaphysics being the study of the fundamental structure of reality. And so what are these concepts that metaphysicians usually affirm? So I'm not trying, my, I'm not trying to just pick some random things that metaphysicians just don't really look at. But I'm saying... These central concepts within the field of metaphysics, should we just leave them unaccounted for? Or is there a, a good explanation for why these things exist? And so the main one that I was looking at in this article uh, that we're speaking about was this relation of grounding. Because as I was saying to you, over the past 15, 20 years, there's been, um, uh, I would say, some of the most influential philosophers in the world. They're affirming that there is this thing called grounding. Now, there's a debate between how to best understand it, but there is a general sort of consensus that's growing that actually 
there seems to be this thing called grounding that we need to take account of. It's there. It exists in some way. And so what I'm trying to say is, well, according to a certain criteria, God's, God and his existence is the best explanation for why this relation of grounding exists. So we shouldn't just take it, because, and as I do in the article, and I, I do go quite in depth in each point, but I'm trying to say, when we take all the options on the table, so we, we assume that there's this relation, what's the best explanation? Is it something that's a brute fact that it just these relations just exist? Or is there an alternative explanation for them? And then I sort of say, well, these are the, the general physical or, or let's say, um, so I call it the physicalist option. I don't know if that's correct in the terminology, but these options which are um, not supernatural. Okay, So we just take these options that metaphysicians put forward to try and account for this relation. Do they fulfill the criteria? I then argue that actually they don't fulfill the criteria. And even if they do fulfill it, they don't fulfill it as well as theism, the claim that there is a God. So God, according to the criteria that I, I've taken on board, fulfills it. And because he fulfills it best, he is the best explanation of there being a relation of grounding. So if you want to have grounding, as most metaphysicians want to, then you also need to, in a way, affirm God's existence because he is the best account for this relation existing. Yeah. So that's um, when you were talking about the abductive nature of it. I get people all the time, uh, which, what's the best argument for God? What's the best argument for God? And I'm like, it's an abductive case. You know, it's, it's we, we have all of these things that we experience in life and <clears throat> And there's so many things that that seem to point to, you know, there being uh, like the something fundamental to reality, you know, just the ground layer that's responsible for yeah. all of this and, and all these different things. And I'm so like, so I, I don't have one argument that's going to be compelling to you yeah. more than likely. It's it's going to be, you know, an abductive case. Yeah, um, so I had heard on one of the shows, uh, I think you broke it down uh very uh succinctly and i had a good i mean i followed it pretty well where you were talking about consciousness being grounded by the brain being grounded by uh i believe the body or physics or and so with that how would you get from consciousness and all these kind of groundings yeah to a fundamental grounding yeah. for all of yeah it? yeah exactly so we have so just for, for the audience to understand, with this view of metaphysics that I'm speaking about, which a lot of metaphysicians would affirm, they have a certain view of reality where reality is layered or it's hierarchically structured. So we don't have reality in a way that, let's say, for example, humans, cows, planets, and you know, let's say tables, they all exist in the same level. How reality is, is that reality structured into certain levels where at the top level you have less fundamental things and as you go down each level you have things that are more fundamental so for example as you were saying let's say at the top level you have economical theories which are of great importance because if you're going to run a government effectively you need, need to have an effective economical strategy so economics is an important field of study and we have all these theories that economists are speaking about. But these theories are not existing in and of themselves. They exist because there are these economists who are thinking about them. So with that understanding, we have these economical theories depending upon the mind of the economists. So that dependence relation though, is a relation of grounding. So you have the economic theories being grounded by our minds. And how you know that to be the case is because get rid of the minds, then you don't have the economical theories. And so what you have then is these economical theories, which are less fundamental than the mind. And then we have the mind of a person. But just assuming for, for the sake of argument, that the mind might be distinct from the brain in some way or something like that. So you have the mind existing, but then the mind exists in virtue of the brain. But then the brain exists in virtue of our chemical structure 
but then our chemical structure exists in virtue of, let's say, things like quarks. And so what you have in that sort of layered structure is as you are descending down the levels of reality, you are going into more fundamental things. So the theories existing in virtue of the mind, the mind existing in virtue of the brain, the brain existing in virtue of the chemical structure and structure existing in virtue of the quarks. And so what you have here is this layered structure of reality. But then the question is, where should we stop? Because it just seems like we can keep on descending down or we should be able to keep on descending down. One thing depending upon another, depending upon another and so on and so forth. But so the whole question here is, is where is the explanatory stopping point? Where should we stop in this descent that we are going? Now, a lot of philosophers will argue and say, and this is outside of the theological context, they would say, we need to come to a stopping point. So you have sort of this divide between people called metaphysical foundationalists, and you have metaphysical, um, sorry, people who, who hold to infinitivism, which is the idea that you just keep on going down in a sort of an infinite way, just keep on going down, you just keep on having things which are grounded by other things, but there's no sort of fundamental level. But then the foundationalist would say that actually we need to come to an entity or a group of entities that are absolutely fundamental. Now, as I was just explaining in that sort of ex that small sort of layered structure, what we've taken to be the absolutely fundamental entities are these quarks in that everything is ultimately grounded by them. You get rid of the quarks, you then get rid of every single thing in that layered structure of reality. Now, the question I would have, though, is why should we stop at the quarks? What is the, what's the reason that we should do that? And so in my argument, the way that I sort of say we should have the explanatory stopping point being sort of placed at is how well the entities that are fundamental or are fundamental candidates, how well do they fulfill this inductive criteria? By them in fulfilling the inductive criteria best, better than all the other, other alternatives, we can then take that entity or entities to be the absolutely fundamental things. So the quarks, if they are to be absolutely fundamental in that we cannot descend any further down them, then we need to say that they are the entities that fulfill this inductive criteria best. And sort of in a slogan fashion, the inductive criteria is just basically the simplest entity. So an entity who is the simplest entity that fits with our background knowledge that leads us to expect the data is the entity who's taken to be fundamental. So if we cannot have any, let's say, increase to simplicity so that we cannot get any entity that's simpler than the entity we're talking about, and if we cannot have an entity who um, fits with our background knowledge better than anything else, and if we can also not have an entity who explains all the other things better than this entity, then this entity is the fundamental one. And so in my argument, what I'm trying to say is God is that entity. He is a simplest entity fitting with our background knowledge that leads us to expect all the other entities in the layered structure of reality. And that's also including the relation of grounding that ties them together. And so where we, why we stop with God is because he is the best fulfillment or the claim that there is a God is the best fulfillment of this inductive criteria. And that, that's the reason why we stop with him. So we descend further down. We don't just stop at the quarks or in a metaphysical sense, we don't stop at what I called in the paper priority pluralism. We don't stop at all these infinite number of quarks or, or entities or particles because they are not the simplest. They don't fit with our background knowledge better and they don't lead us to expect the data better than God. And that's why we descend further down to, to him, him. Yeah. So do you get into um, like a modality with it? Like the necessity, the, you know, contingency, the, uh, you know, is, is that, is that somewhere that, because it seems to be a lot of arguments today, you know, uses, you know, modal terms or, or modal logic or something like that. And that's, that's immediately kind of where it goes in my head is, you know, there's this, this, this necessity, you know, the quarks mm -hmm. to me would be like, you know, they they have some kind of contingency and it would seem we would need some kind of necessity is that do you go that direction in the paper or um so i don't actually use the terminology any modal terms like necessity and contingency as such 
Um, that's not to say that I'm not taking God to be a necessary being. It's just that my argument doesn't require for that to be the case. It just requires for God to be fundamental. So I, I prefer in this argument to utilize the terminology of fundamentality. So God is the fundamental entity. If that means that he's metaphysically or logically necessary, then that's okay. But it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the argument is trying to say we need an entity who is at the fundamental struck, fundamental level of reality, and that is God. And everything else above that, if you're using the term of contingency, all we're saying is that they are all grounded entities. But there is one entity who's ungrounded, and that being can be metaphysically, logically necessary or not. But he's he is the thing who is fundamental. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're, you're not going and, and kind of like just taking on all of that burden we're just trying yeah. to get to kind of the foundation here yeah. Uh, yeah so you had mentioned being a catholic yeah. and now i hear god is simple so i'm thinking yeah. divine yeah. simplicity is this kind of the concept that it is um coming from or or are you using it differently or yeah so i, I in in the paper i i sort of introduce from other work that I've done on divine simplicity, I do utilize the notion of divine simplicity. And I think it is absolutely key for this argument. Why this argument works um, is because of metaphysical simplicity. Because what I'm trying to say is that we, because God is a being who lacks proper parts, he is the simplest entity that you can think of. So why it's good to have this in my argument is because it gives so much layers of defense for this argument. Because what I'm doing is that, okay, if I just run through the criteria, God is the being who um, predicts the data. So the criteria, just to say it quickly for the audience, there are, there are four, four criteria, three that are important that are actually utilized in the argument, which is the criterion of predictive power, the criterion of background knowledge, and the criterion of simplicity. So the criterion of predictive power is the idea that an entity should lead us to expect the data that we have. The criterion of background knowledge is that it should fit with the wider fields of knowledge that we accept. So it should have some explanatory value in wider fields. And then the third one is simplicity, is that should be an entity who's simple in, in this specific sense is one who is qualitatively and quantitatively simple. That means that a quantitatively simple being is the fewest number of entities. A qualitatively simple being is the being who has the fewest number of properties and falls into the fewest number of kinds. So, for example, if you just take a mundane case like a detective example, this inductive criteria is in play there. Because let's say I'm trying to find a, you know, who is the person who murdered this other individual. I'm going to utilize this criteria. I'm going to look at, okay, let's say there's a guy called David who did it, or who I'm postulating as the, the suspect. I... If he is the person who did it, then I should expect to find certain data. I should expect to find murder weapons, blood, maybe some uh, in, uh, motive note or something like that. I should find something that leads me to expect it to be David. And so David, if he is one, who, the one who did it, we should expect the data, certain data. And so that's the criterion of predictive power. The criterion of background knowledge is that he should fit with our wider field of knowledge. That means if David is known to be a holy monk or something like that, a Buddhist monk uh, who wouldn't hurt a fly, that's going to play a little bit of a, something in my, my mind. I'm going to be like, okay, it's very strange, extremely out of character. But if he's someone who's known to be quite violent, maybe gone to prison before for violence, then it could be something that, you know, that would raise the, the sort of explanatory value of the, him being the suspect. And then the last one is simplicity. It's better for me to postulate one person, David, instead of me saying five, six, seven people did it. I mean, it's not going to sound very plausible if you have a lawyer for David says, no, it's not David who did it. It's, it's Tom, John, Sam and Paul, and they all colluded together to frame David. It could be the case of that so, but it's very unlikely. And so we privilege a quantitatively simple and um, um, hypothesis, one that postulates the fewest number of entities, but also we we want the qualitatively simple thing as well. So in that case, it will be motives, having one motive over many. So this criteria is important, not just in this argument, but it's a general criteria that people utilize, let's say in history, in murder investigations, in science, in, in wider fields, 
It's a criteria that is not ad hoc. So according to this criteria, God is the being who does that for the phenomena that we're looking at. So the phenomena, for example, of the grounding relation, if we're taking that to be the phenomena, saying that there is a God, he is the best explanation for this because he leads us firstly to expect there to be a grounding relation. If there is a God, we should expect there to be a relation of grounding. Now there's argument that needs to be given there, and I do give argument for that, utilizing goodness and diffusiveness principle and things like that. But let's just say we're not going into that. God fulfills a criteria in a predictive power. If there is a God, we should expect there to be a relation of grounding. But then also he fits with our background knowledge because I define God as a trope. And a trope is an entity in metaphysics who, which is normally taken to have a lot of explanatory value in different areas and different research sort of projects. So it's not just a simple idea. If I define God, for example, as a spirit, it's very difficult to have a spirit fitting with your background knowledge because in, let's say, metaphysics, spirits aren't normally seen to have a lot of explanatory value outside of theology. So defining God as a trope allows us to have this idea that God does fit with our background knowledge. But then also taking on board now metaphysical simplicity, if we say God is metaphysically simple, that means he has no parts, he has no properties, then we have the criterion of simplicity being fulfilled to the greatest extent because we have quantitative simplicity. We're only postulating one entity. But then we have qualitative simplicity because we have a being who has no properties at all. So he has the fewest number of properties. And given that he's a trope, he doesn't <clears throat> exemplify any properties. He then only falls into one kind. We only have to postulate the kind of trope. So saying all of this and sort of in a long-winded way of your, your, your uh, um, question, simplicity plays a role because it provides that last line of defense. So if you have, let's say, you have a, another hypothesis, another explanation that predicts the data as well as theism. And then you have another explanation that, that fits with our background knowledge as well as theism. You'll then have to go to the last line and say, well, does it, is it as simple as theism? Taking on board metaphysical simplicity, you're not going to get any entity that is simpler than what's postulated by theism. So with everything sort of being equal, you're going to have theism win out because of metaphysical simplicity. So you have all of these sort of three levels of defense in this argument. You have to first meet predictive power, which is difficult for another explanation to do. You then have to meet background knowledge, fit with background knowledge, which again is quite difficult to do. And then last of all, you then have to meet simplicity, which I would say is not going to be met to the same way that, that theism can be. So this argument sort of is layered and leveled in that sort of way. Yeah, there's uh so yeah, a couple a few things there. Um so I would say probably we would call, you know, the criterion you were laying out like theoretical virtues or or something, you know, it, it just seems to be kind of like an intuitive, you know, virtuous way of of thinking things out. And I like how you um put the predictive power because I think a lot of people have this 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 empirical idea of predictive power and really predictive power is not sitting there and saying okay it should go do this you know it should go do that it's about we look at a hypothesis and 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 would we expect to see these things given the hypothesis so i think that's a uh, very important distinction um i won't touch on trope theory uh, yes. <laughs> I think we'll get a little bit de yeah, deep yeah. there, <laughs> but with this, so that the, your idea of, I'm very sympathetic to, uh, simplicity because yeah. like you were talking about, I mean, it, it, simplicity, you know, doctrine, divine simplicity, just, there's so many, you know, philosophical issues that it avoids. Hmm. Would you say that it's compatible with the same kind of simplicity you would find in, you know, Islam or uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, or does it, is it predicated on like the absolute divine simplicity mm. of Catholicism or Thomism? Yeah. So, um, so I have a specific um, model of divine simplicity, which I've called, um, it's a bit of a strange name, but it's called the aspect, aspect account of simplicity. Now, this specific, and it's, it's, it's a paper, so Divine Simplicity, the Aspectival Account, uh, which was published last year. And this account of simplicity, I believe, um, 
allows you to have all that you want from absolute divine simplicity, but you're not baggaged with a lot of problems that people sort of have to stomach with that sort of idea. Um, and so you can get God being numerically identical to each attribution that's made of him. So him being, you know, let's say all knowing and perfectly good and all these sort of things, which seem to be qualitatively differing things. God, power seems to be different from knowledge and goodness and eternality. But all of these attributions that we make of God are actually him. They are numerically identical to him. And the aspectival account that I utilize um, and I, the concept of aspects. So why it's called the aspectival accounts, because I use this notion called aspects, which were um, introduced into literature by a philosopher called Donald Baxter, who, again, is not a he doesn't work in theology. So it's a general philosophical sort of concept. I then utilize that to sort of shed light to this idea of divine simplicity. And so it's sort of the idea in a nutshell that. God has these things called aspects. So power, so knowledge, goodness, power, all of these things which are attributed of God are not properties of him. They are things called aspects. And the interesting thing about aspects are aspects are numerically identical to their bearers, but they are also qualitatively differing. So one aspect qualitatively differs from another, which differs from another, but they are all numerically identical to their bearer and one, one another. So what you have then is God can be a qualitatively complex being in that we predicate, we have truth makers for our, for our propositions about him being all powerful, all knowing and all these sort of things are qualities of God. They are qualitatively differing, yet they are numerically identical to him because they are aspects. And so having these things allow you also to, um, let's say you can take God to be absolutely simple in the sense that he isn't, he doesn't have things which are numerically distinct from him. So properties yet also you can have, and I'm, I'm, I, so there's another article that I had where I was taking on a specific argument. So you might've heard like this modal collapse arguments against simplicity. Um, and so uh, there was one put forward by by Ryan Mullins and, and Joe Schmitz, which was called the aloneness argument. And so I have a response to that from the aspectival account that I, I formulated. And I actually show that even with this account of simplicity, God can have contingent things. So and that's that's actually quite an important thing, because then by God having contingent things, he could even be a temporal being and still be uh, simple, which is quite interesting. So God can have contingent things predicated of him, which normally, let's say someone who takes absolute divine simplicity, you can't really have that because if he has all of these things which are numerically identical to him, he'll then be numerically identical to contingent things, which is problematic. But taking these things to be aspects allows you to even have God have contingent things which are numerically identical to him. And so you can have him being temporal, you can have him you know, um, being contingent and let's say passable, if you want, want it to be, he can be mutable in a certain sense. So you can have all of these things that other people might want to take in, let's say, an Eastern Orthodox camp or other camps. So this neoclassical view of God, you can have that, but you can also have absolute divine simplicity with this specific account. And so, yeah, that that's uh, the account that I have, but it helps also in a natural theological case because it can help in the argument um, itself as well. Yeah, that's uh, so. That that was kind of one of uh, when I was, you know, saying I'm sympathetic to divine simplicity. You know, I'm thinking of modal collapse, necessitarianism. You know, these yeah. different things. Um, uh, which I, I believe Schmidt Schmidt's come out and uh, I think he wrote a paper on uh, getting away from accusing it of you know modal collapse and. Uh, Ryan Mullins, I, I like both. Uh, both of them are cool as can be. But uh, I think Ryan, Ryan Mullins has a, a very unique perspective. He's got, it's like classical theism and not so much classical theism. And I'm just, I'm like, yeah. uh, how do you put that together? So yeah. Um, yeah. with, <laughs> uh, with um, so thinking of God, how, I, what is the issue when um, people want to, couldn't we just, you know, like Aquinas talks about, you know, just, just go to analogical predication, you know, that 
we can only, you know, know so much about what it's like, you know, is, do you think that it is important to have this doctrine of God, like, you know, that you had laid out, you know, exactly how his attributes work or, or, um, aspects as you would, uh, or, you know, some people hold to a constituent ontology about God, all these, you know, different kind of properties. Do you think maybe we're, that's a little too far, or do you think it's necessary for a lot of these metaphysical arguments, uh, or, uh, you know, any kind of ontology, you know, arguing from an ontology or something like that? Um, yeah, I would, I would take the, the route that, um, so Swinburne has played quite an influential role in my thinking. Um, about these sort of issues, a lot of issues on on philosophy, religion, um, but I would I would take sort of the analogical route to be important, helpful in a certain extent. Um, but I think used, utilizing univocal language is something we we need to do if we're going to be effective communicators of our worldview. Because if we're going to truly understand things, I think we're going to need to utilize language which is understandable. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to understand every single thing. And so. I sort of had this distinction when it comes to this sort of idea about God that we should be able to, you know, definitely say clearly we cannot comprehend God because God is God and by definition he's incomprehensible. So we can't comprehend him, yet we can apprehend things about him. And so we should be able to apprehend, and that means cognitively assent and understand and affirm the things that he has revealed of himself. So if there is a revealed sort of understanding that God is okay, all-knowing, God is all-powerful, or God is all of these attributes. We should be able to cognitively understand this, because if I'm going to affirm the truth value of something, I need to understand it. It doesn't necessarily mean I need to understand every single thing about it, but I should be able to understand it enough to be able to then affirm if it's true or not. And so you can sort of see this in a case that if I was speaking to you in a completely different language that you do not understand, and I was, I was speaking for like, five minutes and you're trying to follow me have no clue what I'm saying but then at the end of it I say well do you under do you agree with me <laughs> you're gonna have to be hand up to say well I don't I, I do I don't I, I I can't affirm or disaffirm what you say because I don't wow. understand it and so wow. you can only affirm the truth value of something or disaffirm it if you have some understanding of what it is and I believe philosophical sort of investigations, philosophical sort of analysis allows us to do that. It allows us to come to a place of saying, we actually have a good understanding of this thing. And so we can affirm and argue for its truth value. And so I believe when it comes to things like the doctrine of the Trinity, which a lot of the time, a lot of individuals will say, well, we just can't understand it. I, I think we can understand it to a good level. I think we can do this. And, and philosophy, and that's why I really love philosophy, religion, because we are utilizing the best tools and techniques to help clarify and justify religious claims. And I think, and other philosophers have said this, we are really in this sort of golden age of philosophy where there are so many good things going on in the wider field of philosophy that can shed great light on theological issues that allows us to understand things better. And so I think, uh, I know you didn't use the term mystery, um, so an analogy isn't mystery. But I feel the mystery card sometimes with a lot of theological discussions is pulled or is, is brought forward too early. I think it's something that needs to be kept to the chest a little bit longer to say, let's try our best to get as far as we can cognitively with this, utilizing our best tools of investigation. And then when we get to that place of saying, you know what, we've tried our best, we can't get any further. Maybe the rest of this is mystery. And so I think philosophy allows us to go down that path of understanding and it allows us to keep that mystery card a little bit, you know, uh, for a little bit later. And so I think, um, for me, we should be able to utilize our best philosophy, and we can do that to shed light on all of these sort of issues and communicate them effectively. And I agree 100%. Um, okay. That is, yes, so that's what I was kind of getting at. Um, so I get the objection a lot about you know well the appeal to mystery and i absolutely just i i'm like 
we got to stop, you know, like cutting it off here. We need to go as far as possible before, you know, we appeal to some kind of mystery, you know, like, like you were saying, you know, we, it's something uh, univocal, not, not just equivocal. We, we need to know, you know, what we can know about it. And otherwise, I mean, everything in life, we just, you know, get to a certain point and it's like, we don't know. Yeah. It's yeah. a mystery. Yeah. yeah. So I, I agree. I think it's extremely important, especially in, philosophy of religion to try and understand as much as possible, because if we're going to talk about a personal God mm. and we're going to talk about, you know, him being manifested in some kind of way, whether it's, you know, with his, uh, you know, the energy's distinction with Eastern Orthodoxy or yeah. Aquinas's being itself. And we participate in this mm. kind of being, yeah. uh, I think it's very important to, to say if, if we can know God, yeah. then we can know things about God. Yeah. And I think we should try to know about God as much as possible. Uh, yes. So, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so kind of just tying it all back in yeah. with the simplicity of God, with this kind of layered structure to reality, um, things seem to be grounded by other things, kind of like, you know, there's causes and effect and, mm. you know, we, we identify them that way. So we all these layers and we get to a certain place where the theoretical virtues are what kicks in kind of, um, you know, Occam's razor or um, I forgot who the newer one with the, the laser, yeah, laser. you know? Yeah. yeah it's just yeah. kind of let's, let's shave everything off and get to the simplest explanation, explanatory scope, explanatory mm -hmm. power, predictive power, yeah. all these things. And then abductive manner, um, does it sound kind of summed up simply? <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, very good. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. that. So it's it's like you say, there is a this structured reality, and and these virtues that we have for an explanation should be what we take into account to allow us to stop at a certain stopping point and say this is where we think fundamental reality is like. But the good thing about this as well is, I think this is a um, just utilizing the term in sort of the medieval fashion, this is a scientific enterprise because we're not saying that there there isn't any possibility at all for there to be something that causes us to go further down. It's just saying at the moment in time, our best explanation is that God is the being who is the simplest entity that expects that we expect um, the grounding relation to stem from. And he fits all our background knowledge. But the good thing about this is saying it's a live research pro project where we should all be involved in saying, let's put forward all these theories and these ideas and say, which one has better explanatory virtue? My argument is trying to say, I don't believe you can do that, but I'm open to, to this as well. And so what I feel is philosophy of religion should be like that. And, and this is sort of my, my, my um, distinction with apologetics. In I think philosophy of religion is... This, this actual philosophical discipline where we are really saying you can be a Christian, you can be a theist, you can be an atheist, but let's utilize our best tools and techniques to try and argue and clarify these claims that we are looking for and justify them. And so what I'm, <clears throat> what I'm trying to do is literally that. I'm trying to say, let's use our best tools and techniques and our best tools and techniques that we affirm outside of theism and the theological circles leads us to God. And so my sort of general um, purpose, I would say, ultimate purpose for my project is trying to say how God and theology and theism were seen as a central area in metaphysics in the medieval period, where metaphysics was done within a theological context. It wasn't the other way around. What I want is I actually want a, a lot of metaphysicians to look at this sort of saying and look at, look at their own metaphysical theories and say, well, actually, it seems to be the case that theism needs to be taken into account in our theorizing. So we need to bring theism back onto the table and even in the central part of the table when we are doing our metaphysical theorizing. And I think by doing that as well, I because I, I believe philosophy has such a great connection to science that if you allow theism to play a central role in, in philosophy, then the way that we also argue for our scientific understanding should also have theism playing a role in that as well. And so my general project is the idea that we should 
get our philosophy right. And by getting our philosophy right, we need to get God back into the conversation. And that's why, for those who do ever read my papers, they're excruciatingly painful reading because it's extremely long and I get too deep into areas. But I'm trying to also speak to a certain audience to say, these metaphysicians, the people who are affirming this, looking at your arguments and going so in-depth with it, it leads us to actually a theistic conclusion. And so we need to also bring God back into the conversation when we're doing our theoretical sort of theorizing. Um, and so, yeah. Well, that that actually ties in um, a bit. Um, I, well, I was going to say with the, the long papers and stuff i'm so adhd i i watch <laughs> as many videos as possible i you know i yeah. i do most of my learning you know audibly or visually yeah. and um uh so that I, that's why i haven't read the paper yet so yeah. Yeah. uh but uh with that it there is a down in the description guys there's uh his paper is i've got the link to it uh i think the field papers um yeah yeah with the uh um I totally lost my train of thought where I was even going to go with it. I cut myself off and, um, the, uh, Oh, tying. Yeah, here we go. I actually have a friend of mine who's going to be a guest later on, who is a philosophy and biology. And along the lines that you're talking about is these issues of, you know, removing teleology out of, you know, the, the, uh, scientific field of biology and trying to come up with all these different names and things and, and, and ways that we don't see the teleology there. And, you know, and for those that are listening, I'm not talking about intelligent design. It's, it's so much different than that. Yeah. But, uh, so with that, here come the hard questions. Yes. Um, is American football or soccer real football? Is American football or soccer football? I mean, I think I'm going to be burnt to the stake if I if I say American football. But I, I honestly, I'm I'm a big uh, soccer fan, uh, but I'm, I'm a big American football fan. It's it's my favorite sport. So I, I American football is my favorite sport. And then um, I know I keep on saying, yeah, I'm a Christian here, but I, I love MMA as well. So oh, like I do UFC too. and yes. all those. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm into that sort of I don't know, aggressive sports. That's what they might call them. But um. I enjoy it. I just enjoy it. Yeah. So American football is sort of the main thing. That's my favorite. Yeah. I just refer to all of them as just, it's as mildly as contact sports. That's yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> <a nice> way. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice yeah. way to put it. Yeah. I was, I grew yeah. up a boxing fan. I'm probably a bit older than you. Um, and I uh, got into MMA before, you know, you had yeah. to go to Blockbuster and rent them. We, oh and, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then, no, and then it took off. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Boxing killed itself. So he took <laughs> off and um, been an MMA fan ever, you know, since oh, okay. then. And, and American football, man, we're almost like brothers, man. It's yeah, like exactly. Way over there in the pond. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's my dream. I'm, I really want to go to America and actually watch a game. That's that's how I really want to be. Uh, the atmosphere, yes. I can imagine, is. I'm th- I live three hours from uh, Kansas City Chiefs Stadium. Oh, well. Nice. Yeah. So you need to come hang out with me. We'll go. Yeah, we need to. Yeah, <laughs> I'll definitely come. I'll pick you up on that, and I'll come down, and we can watch it. That'll be right. Be, that'll be. Awesome. That'll be really, really. Good. Uh, it'd be cheaper to fly than drive now if you could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that is true. With the roof. <laughs> uh, with the okay, so what? What is the, the the one dessert that you cannot walk through the store and see without getting it? Dessert. Okay, I'm a bit of a weird. I actually, so um, I don't eat sugar. I know, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, actively. So I might find it might be found in in some of the foods I eat, but it's not like I would eat, um, let's say, foods with high sugar content. Right. Um, but that's more like a, it's it's just a diet thing that I I went on about three years ago because I used to be really like with, with my my gymming. So I was I was gymming for about yeah, so ten years now. But for about five years, I was just eating whatever I wanted. I never counted my calories, never macros or anything. It wasn't of importance to me. I was just eating. And, yeah. and my wife is Italian, so she, she cooks delicious food. So, yeah, I was just eating, eating, eating. Uh, and I got quite, I added on quite a lot of, of fat and stuff like that. Um, but then I just said to myself, okay, you know, what? I need to get serious because I, I enjoy the gym. I want I to go to the gym to, to you know, to, to try and look, you know, some way. No. 
Um, but then I, I wasn't. And so I just got serious with my diet. I went on a ketogenic diet um, for about three months and I lost 120, 100, oh my gosh, what was I about to say? I lost 25 kilograms. So I, I used whoa. to be 100, yeah, I used to be 125 kilos and I lost 25 and I got down to 100. And then body fat, I was around like 18, 19%. And I got down and I've stayed around 6% um, body fat. So I got really low. And I've just, since then, so this was about three, nearly four years ago, um, I've just counted my macros. I calculate everything. And I just cut sugar out of my diet. And it was the biggest thing for me because I just yeah. love chocolate. And so since oh. then, I've just, yeah, I, 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 I've been able to, you know, de develop a, you know, soul-making in a way that I just don't like like that certain thing anymore. So yeah, I wouldn't be that tempted. My minor is donuts. Oh um, really? Just, <laughs> well, oh. well, it's funny. See, I mean, this is crazy. The more we talk, the the uh, the similarities. My wife's Italian. Um, oh. Her her oh, wow. family's yeah. Her her family's from Italy. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. their goal is to fatten us up. It, yeah. it's make sure nobody else that's you know can get uh i did right. ketogenic diet for a long time i would do yeah. well with the eating thing like you're talking about i convinced myself that a dirty bulk was as good as a clean bulk and, yeah you know so i'm <laughs> like just ah, whatever as long as i get the calories and the macros and yeah. then i realized that uh, well, the difference is with the, like a clean bulk though like, the, the volume of food you have to eat is yeah. just yeah oh man it's like you know rice and yeah, just exactly. a ton so yeah. i did the uh ketogenic diet and i'm yeah. i'll tell you it was i never felt better in my life yeah than yeah. when i was on the ketogenic. once i got a couple weeks into it yeah you know and you kind of get used to your body gets used to burning you know the ketones and yes uh yeah. it uh so do, do you stay on a ketogenic diet or no, no. So I did it. I did that for three months. I then went off it. Oh, okay. So yeah, because I wasn't, I was, I wasn't really, when I was on the diet, I was losing a lot of fat. I wasn't able to gain a lot of muscle, but my, my goal was really like fat loss. So I said, yeah. once I got to the gold weight that I wanted, I then said, okay, from now on, I'm counting my macros and I'm going to slowly build up muscle mass and things like that and take it, mm -hmm. take it seriously, the diet. And so since then I've just been, it's more structured eating, uh, meal prep and all those sort of things. So yeah, I haven't been on keto for about three, four years, but it was when I did do it, it was extremely effective in, in sort of losing fat and things like that. Yeah. Such a, such a boring diet though. Yeah. Just, <laughs> you lose your addiction and love for carbs. And, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Energy level just plummet. Yeah. Well, I, I try So the reason I asked that is, uh, I had friends who, um, you know, they're, lifters that stay on a ketogenic diet and i'm just yeah. like i couldn't do it I, yeah you know, no i couldn't absolutely. yeah I, I couldn't build the muscle i couldn't yeah. uh didn't matter how much protein i ate you know exactly. timing and all that yeah i needed the carbs man yeah i, was like, <laughs> no, I know what you mean i know what you mean just yeah that yeah. energy is just needed it's you don't you don't yeah. actually notice how 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 much you need carbs until you just get rid of them you're like oh my goodness I, oh yeah Exactly. There's nothing like sitting on the bench being lightheaded and yeah, and just yeah. yeah, just 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 tired. And it's like, okay, I just came in and sat down. Exactly. I haven't even done anything. No, <laughs> well, uh Dr. Josh Joshua, yeah. um, I am very appreciative for you coming on, spending time with us, letting Thank us you. kind of get into um the well, I didn't mention the gorgeous hairstyle you have too oh yes so, yeah trying out a new one uh thank you so much for yeah. being with us and spending the time with us uh do you have anything that you want to plug any channels appearances papers books yeah. anything that um yeah so yeah perfect so um yeah thank you very much for having me and it's been yeah been a pleasure and i've really loved your questions and and your way of hosting as well it's just really great so thank you very much and um yeah so if people just want to just look up my stuff, you can just type in my name and all of my papers are on Phil Papers. Uh, so if you just type in my name and then Phil Papers, um, or if you type in my name in Academia, uh, you'll find all of my work on there. So I upload all my papers. Um, and so I have a few papers coming out. Uh, so I've got another argument for God's existence, same type of argument, abductive, uh, but it's going to be an argument from modal metaphysics, so modality and things like that. Um, but it's utilizing this ab abductive approach. So hopefully that should be coming out within the next few weeks. Um, and then I've got a Trinity paper. Uh, so an, a, 
an article on on the Trinity, which utilizes all the stuff I've done, but then it sort of tries to put forward a Latin interpretation of it. Um, so that should be coming out hopefully soon. Um, so I've got that, and I've got a few other things in the works. So I've been working a lot on the problem of evil, like researching that. So I've got an article under review for that. Hopefully that passes review, and then that will be coming out. Um, so sort of a my take on the theodicy. So yeah, there's a few things. I'm a bit. I'm just a theology geek, so I can go on forever about papers and articles. But yeah, people want to yeah. uh, search me up on on academia, fill papers, they'll find all my stuff. Yeah, yeah, I I, I love um, uh, modal arguments and, and 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 you know modality and the problem of evil. So are you writing on like uh, the evidential or probabilistic problem of yeah. evil or? Okay, yeah, that'll be. I'm definitely going to look for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just hoping it's just that the yeah it's under review. Uh, but the things with journals, it just takes so long, so yeah. you're always waiting. Um, so yeah, hopefully within if if it does pass review within the next few months, uh, that'll be out. And yeah, it's sort of, um, yeah, it's just arguing, just trying to put. It's a soul making theodicy in a way, but it utilizes certain things within ethics to in a way, bring forward a new sort of theodicy within the soul-making camp. Um, and so, yeah, I hope people enjoy it when it does come out. And, yeah, we can maybe speak about it later as well when it when it comes out. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love yeah, – yeah, definitely. I mean, awesome. uh, you kind of hit everywhere that I like to hit. And yeah. So it's uh, – awesome. <laughs> yeah. So Great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for that. Thank and uh, I'm going to see everybody out of here. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to move you to the back. If you have to go, that's fine. If not, I'll be – over there in a minute so awesome thank you oh sorry got him on the thank you <laughs> uh thank you everybody for coming showing up hanging out showing out everybody that was in the chat and active um i, I really do appreciate that check out dr sidiwade's links that's in the description to his papers his profile um all of that no diet plans uh that's secret but um I did want to mention one more time, I have started a uh, content creator fund, a uh, Christian content creator fund. It's not exclusive to Christians, uh, but that's kind of the main focus of it. And the links are in the description. Um, check it out if you want to give. Thank you. If you're interested in getting some kind of help with content or starting up, check it out. And with that, we are going to end the show. Thank you so much for being here. And well, I don't get to say the things I normally say because it's not late. So have a good rest of the day.